are in Romans, and we're in chapter 11. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the Bible study tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you've brought us all here safely, and we thank you, and we treasure your word. Uh, we're so grateful, Lord, that your word is all we need for life and godliness, and in it you teach us the things that please you. You steer us away from those things that are evil, and Lord, that uh, in all things you equip us, and we're never left without an equipping, and we thank you for that, dear God. So now as we consider this word and Paul's teaching in Romans that you've inspired him to write, we ask, Lord, that you might give us understanding, that, Lord, you might uh, move in our hearts, that we might be convicted of sin, and, Lord, that uh, we might be encouraged uh, to live out your will. And we thank you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, just to catch you up real quick where we left off, Romans 9, 10, and 11 should be kept as a unit. Uh, that's really important. And uh, it's, it's asking the question. We came off of chapter 8 with this beautiful, wonderful, victorious chapter that just really should send the Christian celebrating the goodness of God toward toward uh, themselves, that the fact that God has died for us, that he's done the work. Chapter 8 really helped us understand the grace of God, and, and, and so much so that you're kind of left going, well, what do I do? Well, nothing. God has done it. You believe, you've just put your faith in him. He's done all the work. And chapter 8 kind of left us realizing that, man, uh, who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And so, Beautiful, wonderful chapter. Well, after chapter 8, we came to chapter 9, and Paul kind of anticipates a question. And the question is, well, wait a minute. Hold up, Paul. Isn't Israel God's chosen people? And if Israel is God's chosen people, didn't, did God fail Israel? Or how is that possible that not all Israel is saved? And it's a good question, and Paul begins to explain that. That And we went through that, chapter 9. You can go back and listen to chapter 9, and I don't have time to summarize all of them. And that's where we're kind of at in chapter 11, is Paul is answering that question, what about Israel? What about the salvation of Israel? And that's where we're picking up tonight in chapter 11. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, if we're talking about Israel, what does that have to do with me, a Gentile? I just out of curiosity, do we have any Jews in our congregation tonight? I don't think Steve is, okay, no, we're, we don't have a single one. We're all Gentiles, okay. So, um, so uh, <laughs> you, uh, that's funny, this is a, for, uh, I didn't even realize that. Uh, but uh, you might be thinking, well, what does it have to do with me? Well, you'll see in just a moment as we go through this passage, but I think it's important when we realize that God's goodness does not fail toward his people, and certainly we're going to see that with Israel. So, with that said, let's get right into the study. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul writes, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Now this is, uh, as Paul is asking this question, has God cast away his people? Remember, we're coming off of chapter 10, and in chapter 10, Paul reiterates that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul went into the importance of preaching. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and, and putting that out there. And now when he asks this question, has God cast away his people? Are, are the people of Israel also known as the people of God? Have they been cast off because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief? Paul answers with a resounding, certainly not. And it's a bit of a rhetorical question. It should elicit from you also, from what you've read so far. No way, certainly not. And then Paul uses his, himself as the example. Hey guys, what about me? I'm a believer. That's what Paul's saying. If you're going to say God has cast away his people, what about me? What about all the other apostles? They're all Jewish. What about the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem? Remember, where did Christianity start? In Jerusalem. <laughs> That's where it started. In Judea. 
in Israel. That's where Christianity started. And, and so, so Paul says, no way, for I also am an Israelite. And then, of course, Paul gives his lineage, seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. And um, so he says that God hasn't forgotten or cast away his people. Now, there's a promise God gave in the Psalms. Psalm 94, 14 says, For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. This is a good hope verse, a promise verse for you to, to keep in mind, store it away. You know what my problem with promise verses is? My prom- pro- problem with promise verses is I have so many of them because do you realize how many promises there are in the Bible of God's faithfulness? So many. And, and it's wonderful. So the Lord will not cast off his people. And, and, and Paul says, certainly not. He has not cast off his people, his inheritance. Let's go to verse two. It says, God has not cast away his people from whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says, and now we're gonna get a, an illustration from the Old Testament of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and, seek, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, we might be asking, what does this have to do with Romans? Well, Paul is looking for a time in which Israel was disobedient in the Old Testament. And, and, and Israel's disobedience during this time is during the time of King Ahab and Jezebel, his wife. And, and Ahab was not only a wicked king, but his wife, Jezebel, was even a, a, a more wicked. And she had not only put to death all the prophets, she had chased everybody out of the land except for what Elijah thought him. And, and the rest of Israel had all bowed their knee to the Baals. They had turned away as far as it, uh, Elijah thought. And so Elijah was on the run and and God meets him, and he, first God says, what are you doing here? And, he, and, and Elijah made his case to God. He said, look, I, I've been zealous for you, God. I, I, I have been faithful to you, and, and I've never forsaken you. But now <laughs> they're after me to kill me, and I alone am left. And so God cares for Elijah, and then, and then God calls Elijah to the uh, mouth of the cave, and, and God passes by in the whirlwind, and, 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 but God was not there, the Bible tells us. And then finally there was this still, small voice, and that's where Elijah found God. And the question came back again, why are you here? And Elijah said, well, I'm the only one left. I've been zealous for you. He says the exact same thing again to God. Like God has forgotten what he just said. And, and God says, oh, no, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. No, Elijah, you're mistaken. You're not the only one. You know, doesn't it make a difference when we realize we're not the only one? Sometimes we think we're alone. We're the only one who is suffering. And, and uh, man, that makes our sense. But as soon as we find out there's somebody else suffering, we're like, oh, good, you know? <laughs> not, not that we want other people to suffer, but it, it comfort, it's somehow comforting. I mean, that's why we have support groups and things like that. So, so there's people who know what we're going through. And, and so for Elijah, this is, this is huge. No, there's 7,000. Now, 7,000 is not a lot of people, especially in the nation of Israel at the time. It's a small number, but it's not about the, the number of people. It's about the fact that God has kept a remnant. And so Paul uses this as an illustration for us to understand that God hasn't cast off his people. He has kept a remnant uh, by his grace. And, and although his people in their unbelief have rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he has kept a remnant, and Paul is one of those remnants. So verse five says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. 
But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Did you get that? Uh, <laughs> let me break it down a little bit for you. First of all, Paul wants us to understand that this remnant is not because of something that they deserve. I'm born from Abraham. I deserve God's grace. No, that's not grace. I, I, I keep the law of God. Therefore, I deserve salvation. No, that's not grace. You can keep the law. Go ahead. But don't think that that is why you receive this grace. That's why Paul says it according to the election of grace. Now, look at verse 6. It says, and if by grace then it is no longer work. So if Israel, if the Jew wants to come into that grace to believe in Jesus, he has to forsake his dependence upon his work. Now, he can still keep, keep doing the traditions. That's fine. But he has to forget the fact that that has anything to do with his salvation. And it has to be solely on the work of Christ. Because as soon as he starts to think that, well, I've received this salvation because I'm a Jew or because I was born of Abraham or because I have kept the law, then Paul says, well, that's no longer grace. That, that, that's works. As soon as you start putting it about some reason, think about this. I was actually explaining grace to Lucy uh, this week and we were driving and uh, passing through Utah seeing the Mormon temples, and she was asking me about Mormonism, and, uh, and we were talking about, I was talking about grace, because the Book of Mormon says, grace after all you can do, which is, here Paul says, that's not grace. And so I was explaining to Lucy, and I said, you know, honey, it'd be like if I came up to you and said, you know, I like your personality, so I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to give you $5 because I like your personality. That's not grace. That's because you've done something to warrant me giving you that $5. But if I come up to you and just say, here's $5, and you say, well, why? Said, no reason. I just wanted to give you $5. That's grace. Just giving it to you. I, there, there's no reason you haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. There's no purpose behind it. It's not based on just me liking one and not the other. It's, it's just because I've given it to you. And so I explained to her that when the, Mormon, the Book of Mormon says, by grace after all you can do, there is an expectation that you do something first. And then eventually grace might kick in. That's no grace at all. Grace is by the work of Jesus Christ. We receive God's riches, and we'll see that in a moment here, because of the work of Christ, that he has done it all. We've done nothing. And so Paul says, says if it is of works, it is no longer grace. So if you have to add any work to it, it's no longer grace. And then, and then he says the converse is, is also true. Otherwise, work is no longer work if it's supposed to be by grace, right? So, so if you say, well, I've got to work, I've got to do the law, but God, I need some grace. Well, sorry, you're not going to get it because then, then, then it's by work, right? You can't, you can't say that I've worked for this, but I need a little bit of grace because then it's not by works. See, that's oftentimes the way humans approach God. Well, I'm basically good. I'm mostly good. Well, I'm better than, than that person over there. I, I'm better than my cellmate. <laughs> I'm better than, you know, whoever they're going to start saying. We all find somebody we're better than. We, always, we love to do that. We love to surround ourselves with people that we feel better than, right? Because it makes us feel better, right? Whatever the case. But, but as soon as we start to approach God that way, and then we say, but I need a little bit of grace. Forget it. <laughs> you think you can work? Go for it. Try it. <laughs> you're never going to succeed. So, so Paul helps us understand this idea that there's a remnant. This remnant, he himself is only by grace. 
that God has done this work and that he is dependent by faith in Jesus Christ. So verse seven goes on to say, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Now, first it says, what then Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What does Israel seek? What does Israel seek by their constant keeping of the law. If they have not obtained what they seek, what are they seeking for? They're seeking relationship with God. They're seeking the Lord God. They're seeking that that ability to be forgiven of sin and be in right relationship with God. That's what the sacrifices is for. That's what all the offering, that's what for the temple is for. Without the temple, they can't have it. There's no relationship with God without the sacrifices. That's what they seek. The question is, if they have not obtained it, and of course we're talking now in the first century, uh, the first century where the temple was still, active and it was still there and, and, and offerings were being made, if they have not obtained it, the question is how were they seeking it? They were seeking it by works. And that's the main problem. As long as Israel sought it by works, they could never obtain it. And that's what we have to understand as a Christian. As long as as we think our works have anything to do with our relationship with Christ, you miss out on it. No, it's all by Christ. And it's because it's all by Christ that we grow deeper in relationship with him. We're drawn closer to him. How do the elect or the remnant of God seek it? Well, they seek it by faith. They trust in him. Notice that here it says that... that, uh, the rest were blinded because they refused to seek it by faith. We see that God hardened their hearts. He blinded them. Verse 8 said, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Now, Paul here again quotes uh, actually two Old Testament passages. One is from Deuteronomy. The other is from Isaiah. And uh, in Isaiah, that's where this idea of the spirit of stupor comes from uh, and this blindness that that God has covered, uh, closed their eyes and covered their heads, that God has closed their eyes to the prophets and he's he's covered their heads to the seers. Basically, he's just blinded them and made them deaf so they could not hear or respond to God. And uh, so that was the, that's the first quote, and it, you know that totally reminds me. I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, but I I big I'm a big I love the movies. Every year, my wife watches all three. Well, actually, she watches all six. She's intense, but I catch parts of it throughout throughout the year, and uh, or throughout the the. It's always during this time of year she watches them. But um, I, you know, there's a king of Rohan, and when we first meet, when he's first introduced in the Lord of the Rings. He's just this lump on his throne. He's powerless. Uh, There's a a guy who was obviously his advisor, but he's called Wormtongue. And Wormtongue just kind of whispers things in his ears. And he's created this, this spell upon the king of Rohan where he's just become this lump. He's not making any decisions. You see his eyes and he looks totally blind. He looks like this old man. And finally there's this scene where Gandalf and Aragorn and Legolas come into the castle and, and, and Gandalf just basically uses his authority to push out this worm-tongued guy. And all of a sudden, the next thing you see, the king of Rohan is in his right mind. He looks younger. He looks 20 years younger. He can see because that, 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 
that stupor has been removed from him, that sickness that has caused him to become ineffective. And really that's what we're seeing here is, is Israel has rejected the Messiah, they've come into a stupor. And the answer, the solution is receive Jesus Christ. Well, the next quote Paul gives here is from Deuteronomy 29. And he, I'm going to read this to you because I think this one's a little more important, or not more important, but it's, it, it helps us understand it a little bit more. Deuteronomy 29, uh, 2 through 6. And Moses is told by God to make a covenant with Israel. So this is what he says. Do, do you have that passage? Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 6. Okay, I'm going to start reading it while you're plugging it in. You got it. Okay. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders... Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread nor have you drunk wine or similar drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And so as God is beginning to speak to Israel, he... he, he basically is saying, look, you've seen all these miracles. You've seen how I afflicted the Egyptians. You saw the plagues that came on the Egyptians. You saw how I delivered you with a mighty hand out of Egypt. You, you were there at the Red Sea when you were closed in in Pharaoh's army, and I, I opened up the sea. You've experienced your sandals not wearing out for 40 years. That alone is just amazing. Um, that's some good tread there. Uh, Vibram's got nothing on that. Your, your clothes have not worn out for 40 years. You can imagine they would look like they were in tattered rags by the time they've come through. But they're looking like they just left Egypt. And, and God is saying, and you've seen how I've provided for you. And you haven't been drunk during this thing. You haven't missed out on that. You haven't drank any wine. So, so, but, but somehow... You, uh, you've been taking care of this entire time, but you've still missed out on knowing me. And really the whole point of this is aside from God enlightening his people, they still remained insensitive to his work. This is the same thing that happened with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests. Remember they were always asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? I've told you that I'm the Messiah. Tell us plainly, I've told you plainly. Uh, do us a sign. Give us a sign. I, if I even if I did a sign, you wouldn't believe it. I've done many signs, and, and and they wouldn't believe it. They were totally insensitive to the work of God, and it takes the it takes the Lord to really allow us to open up and understand and see. And so, because of uh, Israel's unbelief, God has in turn hardened their hearts. And, and put them into this stupor and blindness. So verse 9, we see that quote. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down at their, at their back always. Um, this is a quotation from Psalm 69, 22 through 23. But notice what it is. Let their table become a snare and a trap. What is a table supposed to be? A table is supposed to be a source of nourishment and blessing. When we sit down at the table to eat food, it should be a source of nourishment and it should be a time of blessing. Wow, wow. look at what the Lord has provided. I get to eat. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, we're going to give thanks to the Lord. Uh, we always, when we sit down for dinner as a family, uh, we'll ask, okay, who's going to pray? And Lucy's like, I want to pray. <laughs> but of course, she wants to do the super speed prayer. And, and so then she goes, Amen. And I'm like, and Lord, let's, and we start, I, I start praying for the people like in a much slower cadence. Someday she'll catch it. But, uh, but uh, I want her to recognize that, man, this is a blessing and source of nourishment. That's what the table is for. But notice that David says the table becomes a snare 
and a trap. So as God has provided blessing and nourishment to the people, for them it's become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. And their eyes are darkened, they do not see, and they bow down their back always. So that's what's happened in Israel's unbelief. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? This should uh, elicit the emphatic, no way, certainly not. No way. Is Israel, basically the question is, is Israel beyond recovery? That's what the question is. Is, is there any hope for Israel? Yes, there is. Now, um, <clears throat> I want to say this. In the New King James, they, their translation, they made this a little bit confusing. So I want to cor- uh, kind of help correct it a little bit. So when it says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And he says, certainly not. Now it gets confusing. But through their fall, see that? Well, wait a minute. I thought they didn't fall, right? That, well, the word fall there, but through their fall, you can replace that with um, a misstep or a trespass. It's actually a different word altogether. Uh, and, and it would be better if they said, but through their trespass or through their misstep to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles, now, if there, uh, in the next verse, now, if their trespass or misstep is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So I, I want to correct that. It might help you understand it a little bit better. Uh, but, but the idea of this is that, that through, although they've stumbled, they, they're, they're not beyond any type of rescue or salvation, but through their, their stumbling, through their misstep, look what it says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's to us. God has done something incredible out of their apparent evil. They, that, their unbelief is evil. Their rejection of Messiah is evil because they're rejecting the true king. But through their unbelief, God has brought salvation to us. That's a wonderful thing. Wow, that's amazing. That, 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 thank you, Lord, for doing something good out of their rejection. And so Paul is saying that. Now look at what he says in verse 12. Now if their, their trespass or misstep is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So th- what, what Paul is saying here is, If God has brought this about through their misstep, how much more when they finally receive will will the riches be for the whole world, for for us? How much more will we receive once Israel comes to to the knowledge of salvation? Okay, that's what Paul is saying. Like, we should be very motivated to share our faith and pray uh, pray for Israel. Now, Paul and Barnabas actually experienced this very thing in Antioch. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, and I want to read this this passage to you, starting at verse 42. It says, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, Now, remember, Paul and Barnabas always went first to the synagogue, if there was a synagogue, and they would share with the Jews this wonderful gospel message. They would share the freedom in Christ, the victory of Christ, the salvation in Christ, and and of course, the hope of the resurrection. And so they would always bring it first to them. So now that they've brought it here to the synagogue, the Gentiles are begging that they might be preached to on the following Sabbath. Verse 43 says, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes Proselytes are Gentile Jews, Gentiles who have become Jews, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. 
on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Now, you and I might consider that a massive victory. We went out, we shared the gospel, and then the following week we came back because we were asked to come back, and now we've got almost the whole city there. Wouldn't you be excited? How, how many have shared the gospel with 20 people at one time? Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, and weren't you amazed when the following time more people came out, right, and you got to share? And, and I'm sure when you guys went to Africa, there were times in which I don't even know how everybody's going to hear me. How's this going to work, right? You're just so blown away by the people coming. Most of us haven't had a chance to experience that. But what's that? Yeah, you can go with them to, to back to Africa. Uh, but but we would be we would be thrilled, and I'm sure Paul and Barnabas were too. So it says the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said. It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And so, so Paul and Barnabas, as they have this incredible turnout the following week, the following Sabbath, then the Jews see this turnout and go, you know what? If it's for everybody, uh, I don't want it anymore. Like, I want to be the trendsetter, not part of the trend. Right? So, I don't know what they were thinking. But, but we, we read that they were, they were filled with envy. And as a result, they started contradicting and blaspheming the message. What happened? Five, six days, sorry, seven days ago, you guys were thrilled on this. You were excited about hearing it. You wanted to hear it. Well, well because they're involved, I, I don't want anything to do with it. So, Paul says, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If God has blessed us richly through Israel's disobedience, how much more will he bless us in their obedience? That's, that's what we have to think about. And, and I'll tell you, I, can tell, I already know when that day will happen. And it happens at the coming of the Lord. Actually, it happens 45 days after he returns to the earth. 45 days. And then we see he establishes his millennial reign. At his coming, Israel believes. All Israel will be saved. We'll read that next week in this chapter. Uh, and, and we're going to see a blessing like we could never even imagine when Christ establishes his throne on this earth for that thousand-year period. So, verse 13 for I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, so perk up Gentiles. Paul is, is directing this toward you. If by, by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if they're being cast away in the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So Paul sees his work in reaching the Gentiles as a means to reaching his own countrymen. So he's not looking at this as like, okay, I'm kicking the dust off my feet. I want nothing to do with you Jews. I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. That's not Paul's attitude at all. Paul's attitude is really like if I reach the Gentiles, if, as, I magnify, as my ministry is magnified, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh. Man, I want the Jews to desire the relationship with Christ that you, the Gentiles, experience. And I want them to see that in you. I want them to see how you've been forgiven, how you love one another, how you've been transformed and changed, how you've conformed your lives to 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 God, how you now offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God. I want the Jews to see this, that it might provoke them to jealousy. Boy, I think we'd all be stoked if just everyone around us saw that, Not alone, let alone the Jews. I mean, this is really how you and I should be living in such a way that, that when we face trials of various kinds, we consider it pure joy 
And the world goes, what? Are you nuts? How can you deal with that? No, I mean, it hurts. I, I'm not excited about the pain that the trial brings. I'm not excited about the hardship, but I am excited about what my God is going to do through my suffering. I am excited about knowing him more. See, when the world sees the Christian suffer, when the world sees the Christian deal with strife, trials, uncertainty, pain, loss, all these things, the world should become jealous. There's something different about you. Well, I'll tell you what that difference is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ changed my life. And that's what Paul is saying about the Jews, that jealousy through the, uh, he, that he may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. The Gentiles are not saved merely for their own sake, but for the sake of God's election of Israel. How unshakable is the faithfulness of God to the nation he has chosen. That's James Dane writes that. How unshakable is the faithfulness of God to the nation he has chosen. Your election, my election, was not for just our own sake, but for the sake of God's election of Israel. And that's important to remember. And we'll get to that in a moment. But Paul hopes that his work will save some of them. He can be turned toward Christ, certainly. If he could be turned toward Christ, certainly some of his countrymen could be turned toward Christ. So Paul says, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, this is interesting. What is Paul speaking about? Is he speaking about uh, just a new life in Christ being born again, life from the dead? I, I actually think he's speaking about the resurrection here that uh, their acceptance will be the resurrection. Literally in the Greek, it says, out from dead ones. That's what the Greek literally says. And so the first resurrection is actually happens multiple times. When we look at the the, uh, eschatological plan of God, and what I mean is the the end times or last things. Um, The first resurrection is the resurrection to life. It's those whose names are written in the book of life. And it happens at the rapture. We read about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. Remember, Paul says, well, those who are asleep, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are still will be caught up in the air with him. So it happens at the rapture. It also happens with the tribulation saints. They're raised at Christ's return in Revelation 20 and the believing Old Testament saints. And we read about that in Daniel chapter 12. Uh, And so that is all a resurrection to life. uh, And that's when we receive our new bodies, that resurrected body. And so, so Paul says that what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead, this wonderful participation in the resurrection to life. There's a second resurrection. You don't want to be part of that one, okay? Don't go toward the second resurrection. I just talked about the first resurrection. The first resurrection is a resurrection to what? To life. Yeah, good. You're listening. To life. Okay, and it's those whose names are written in what? The Lamb's Book of Life. The second resurrection, that's the one you don't want to be a part of. If if the first is a resurrection to life, the second is a resurrection to? Death. Death. Okay, it's the great white throne judgment. And all those who are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You can read about that toward the end of Revelation. So you want to be part of the first resurrection. How do we get written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive what he's done for us. So, verse 16 uh, says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a, part, a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Okay, so now let's check your ego. 
That's where we're at at this point in time. Uh, lest you get really excited and prideful that you are somehow better than someone else and you forget that it's about the grace of Christ. So first thing is, Paul references, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy. I'm going to take you over to Numbers chapter 15. And uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Numbers 15 and verse 18. This is uh, obviously the law regarding this. And it says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. Okay. And then it says, goes on to say, you shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal. Okay. That can also be translated dough. As a heave offering, as a heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you offer it up. Of the first of your ground mill or dough, you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. So uh, God commands them that when you take the first fruits of grain, and you take them to the threshing floor, and you, you grain them out, and then you make a lump of dough, you're going to take a portion of that dough and you're going to give it to the Lord. It's an offering to the Lord. Now, do we give things that are not holy to the Lord? The word holy means set apart. Do, do we say, okay, this is to the Lord, but I'm going to pull that. There you go. No, we don't do that. And we certainly, when, if, if they were to give the second, that, that wouldn't be the one set apart. It's the first that's set apart. And when they give a portion of that dough to the Lord, that, that portion is set apart holy. So what about the rest of the lump? Well, certainly what, what, what Paul is saying is it's also holy. It's just you get to partake in it. This part is to the Lord, this part you partake in. Okay, and so then he goes on to say, if the root is holy, speaking of a tree, an olive tree, so are the branches. How do you say that the, this branch is not holy, but the roots are holy, right? Because the branches are sustained by the roots. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And so Paul here, in speaking about that, that the... Um, that we've been grafted in, we're the wild olive tree branches that were grafted in, and now we're partaking in the root or the fatness of the olive tree. Now, I, I think what this is speaking about is the, the, those Old Testament saints, those patriarchs who by faith believed God, and now we are partakers in that. Here's what we need to remember as Gentiles. Our faith is of Jewish origin, and that's important to remember the, 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 the apostles never saw themselves as other than Jewish. They just believed Jesus is Messiah. Our faith is of Jewish origin, origin and we can't, this, this goes against the, the anti-Semitism, and sadly, there was so much anti-Semitism uh, from the church uh, against the Jew, which, how can this be? Our origin is Jewish. And, and so, so Paul here is saying, no, you can't go around boasting about yourself. I, I myself am a Jew, and I'm proud of being a Jew. Paul is always talking about his Jewish heritage. Um, and, uh, and Paul is reminding all the Roman Christians about this, that salvation for the Gentiles comes only through the incorporation of us into the olive tree. Only that we've been incorporated in to that olive tree. The tree is plant, planted firmly in Jewish soil. So Paul says in verse 18, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. There's just no room for boasting or haughtiness. Verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. 
Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Okay. Uh, First of all, let me just speak about this boasting and this haughtiness. None of us should approach others that we are in some way more deserving or somehow spiritually better than someone else. I've I've seen this uh, firsthand, and uh, especially among those who have really embraced Reformed theology. In fact, I've even been told, oh, they're in their cage phase. They call them a cage Calvinist because they really should be locked up in a cage for the first few years, and then they can come out. That is not the attitude of a born-again believer, that they would boast in themselves in their own knowledge and their own understanding. No, certainly it's only by the grace of God. And so Paul is saying to us that we should have nothing to boast in. We shouldn't become haughty, but rather we should have reverence or fear. Now, when it says here, um, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Okay, let me speak about this for a minute. This is what's called a first class condition in the Greek. And it, the conditional statement beginning with if, okay, if God did not spare the natural branches, that's, that's not a what if or a speculative thing. That's, that's saying that this is true. It's assumed that this is true. God did not spare the natural branches, then he may not spare you either. But I want to I comfort you right now because as you're shaking in your boots saying, wait a minute, hold on, I thought we were in Romans 8 and we were more than conquerors in Christ. I thought that, I thought that nothing could separate us from the love of God. I'm going to screw this up. You know, I, I, let me just help you out with this real fast. This you is in the singular, not the plural. If you had a King James Bible, it would make it easy because King James Bible would say that it would give you the, the thou versus the ye, okay? Uh, so, so King James Bible, we basically get a you all versus a you. In our English translations, we only get you, and it could be plural or, or singular. Well, this is in the singular, so we're talking not to you all beware. We're saying you, okay? We're talking about Gentiles in general. So just like the Jews in general, general have been broken off, uh, God could break off the Gentiles in unbelief. So don't, don't go around boasting, oh, man, look how good I am as a Gentile. <laughs> Those Jews, they were broken off. Look at me, I'm a Gentile, and I'm grafted in. No, that's not how we approach God. So Paul says uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, we, we should uh, respond to God with reverence and fear. So, uh, so as we get into verse 22, Paul is going to summarize what we've learned concerning Israel's salvation. Obviously, concerning us, we should not think of ourselves higher than we ought, but we should be in dependence upon God. And so verse 22, here's the summary through 24. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. Uh, on those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness. Now, severity, that sternness, goodness, benevolence. So those who responded to God in unbelief received severity. Okay, sternness. Those who responded to God in faith received benevolence. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Again, the you is singular there. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. There's the hope. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to your nature, to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? And so we have hope. Next week we're going to see that that hope will be realized eventually in the future. But I want to end with this. As we consider this wonderful love of God and the benevolence toward us, we should not take it lightly. We should recognize the gift that God has given us, and it should draw us closer to him. It shouldn't draw us to become, cause us to become lukewarm or, or uh, flippant about what God has done for us. 
Rather, it should make us serious about our faith and our commitment to him. And as Psalm 122.6 says, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll get there. We're going to get there. Uh, Lord God, Father, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us. And we thank you for the wonderful love that you've shown us and the salvation, the, the beautiful grace that you've given to us through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem as we gather together and we have unity and love and understanding of your word. We remember your, your people. We remember Israel. And we ask, Lord, for you to come, come quickly. We ask, Lord, that you might bring peace, that you might stir a revival among your people. We want to pray specifically for those who are missionaries in the land of Israel and ministers to the Jews, whether they're in the land of Israel or, or spread out throughout the world. We ask, Lord, that these ministers might be given your favor and that, that, that your people, Israel, might respond. We pray for John and Tiffany Davidson. We thank you for the work that they're doing and as they're committed themselves to their Hebrew classes and are, are relearning Hebrew and understanding, Lord, we pray that you might gift them with that ability to speak that language and communicate your gospel clearly. Lord, we love you. We love your people. And Lord, we have a love for the lost, just like Paul said. He, he would rather himself be accursed that his people might be, his countrymen might be saved. And Lord, we have that same attitude, Lord. There's so many who need to be saved. Lord, use us mightily for your kingdom. And we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the scriptures tell us, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So as we wait for the glorious appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, may we boast in him and what he's done for us. And whether here, there, or in the air, may God bless you this week. Amen.